The following podcast is produced or sponsored by a community member. The content, views, and opinions expressed to those of the participants and do not reflect those of BMC or the town of Belmont. BMC welcomes your comments. Call us at 617-484-2443 or email us at access at belmontmedia.org. And good evening, everybody. We want to welcome you to another edition of the TOST Toddcast here on the Belmont Media Podcast Network, found online at belmontmedia.org slash podcast and also at soundcloud.com by searching Belmont Media. You can listen to the Toddcast at your convenience by downloading the free SoundCloud app available on both iTunes and Google Play stores. I hope you've done that by now because it's uh, really worth uh, checking out. Uh, Anyway, my name is Todd Bloniars from the award-winning Time Out for Sports Talk TV show available on BMC channels 9 and 29 and also on demand at belmontmedia.org. So if you're around the age of, uh, if you're one of our listeners who's like around the age of 30 or even younger, you probably have little to no memory of a time when the Boston Red Sox were a baseball franchise under the quote-unquote curse of the Bambino, finding the most excruciatingly painful ways possible to reach the absolute brink of winning a championship only to have the rug pulled out from their fans on a semi-regular basis. But old farts such as myself recall that quite well, which makes what's happened with this ball club over the last 15 years something absolutely surreal. The Boston Red Sox for the fourth time this century are World Series champions. Um, I almost want to paraphrase the uh, the Miami Heat, uh, you know, when they had LeBron and Bosh and, and Dwayne Wade together. You know, not one, not two, not three, four World Series <laughs> victories for the Boston Red Sox. Uh, and uh, just to uh, to paraphrase, uh, also uh, what the uh, the governor of this Commonwealth of Massachusetts, what he said during last week's Duck Boat Rally. We are all indeed living in the golden years. There's no question about that. And I'm very happy to be talking about these golden years, and specifically this golden year, with uh, Red Sox beat writer Christopher Smith from MassLive.com. You can follow him on Twitter, at Smitty on MLB. It's one of my favorite Twitter handles because, you know, it's uh, it's got Smitty in it. What more do you need? <laughs> Chris, uh, <laughs> welcome back uh, to the TOSD Toddcast. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk with you. I, my first question to you, Chris, is for you on a – well, first of all, I want to congratulate you. Is this is this the first time you've covered a championship-winning team? Actually, so I did cover the 2013 team, um, but I, I didn't cover the road games that year. Uh, so this was the first time that you know I was on the bo- the beat full time. That you know oh. I covered them a championship team full time. But yeah, I mean I did. I was around that 2013 team quite a bit and covered you know all the home playoff games and, you know, all the home regular, most of the regular season games that season at home. So, but yeah, this was, this was quite a, quite a ride. Yeah. As I was going to say, so it's a more of a complete, uh, you feel probably more involved or connected with this team than you did uh, the 2013 championship team. What I wanted to ask is uh, just uh, for you on a personal basis, covering the team every day, what surprised you the most about, the, Red, the success that the Red Sox had in the postseason? Because obviously as the regular season went on and we talked during the regular season, uh, you know, this team was just a juggernaut. But was was there anything, and I know we talked a little bit kind of just before the playoffs to sort of preview what might happen, and I don't think a lot of the things we talked about actually happened. So what was the biggest surprise uh, from the Red Sox performance in October that, uh, that at least caught you by surprise? 
Well, many people would probably be surprised by David Price's performance, but I wasn't. I was one that said that he had a dominant playoff performance in him, that he could do that type of thing. So I was right on that, but I was completely wrong on the bullpen. I said uh, before the playoffs that I didn't think the bullpen was good enough to to win a World Series championship, and I was wrong on that account. So, yeah, the bullpen surprised me the most. Um, I would have never seen Kelly doing what he did. Basically, the worst reliever in high-leverage spots throughout the postseason. I mean, obviously, Workman didn't pitch well. Henry was shaky. But the worst reliever that they had in high-leverage spots uh, was Kimbrell. Uh, because, you know, everybody, I mean, Brazier, um, you know, Brazier, Barnes, and um, and Kelly were just lights out the entire postseason, those three, setting it up for, for Kimbrell. And while he was shaky, it really didn't matter. So, yeah, the bullpen was was pretty remarkable considering that they were, you know, they were right at the top of the league and below the Saints in the second half, and their ERA was not good in the second half, so... Yeah, well, you know, just looking at the uh, the postseason stats, I, I happen to have them in front of me. Uh, Kelly in uh, 11 and a third innings, uh, .79 ERA, 13 strikeouts, only allowed eight hits, had a whip of .71. Ryan Brazier, eight and two-thirds innings, 1.04 ERA, a 1.38 whip. And Matt Barnes, eight and two-thirds, 104 ERA and a uh, 104 whip. Uh, so, I mean, those three guys between them only allowed three earned runs in about 28-odd uh, innings. Uh, I know one of the, uh, you know, getting to your point on the bullpen and, and how you didn't, you were wrong about it, uh, just to your point, I know one of the players you talked about who you thought could end up being an X factor who never turned into one at all was uh, was Stephen Wright uh, because, uh, obviously, he never uh, could come back from uh, uh, from the, the, the knee flare-up and... Uh, you know, he just never became a factor at all, even though he could have been eligible to come back during the World Series. Yeah, but I think that, you know, that role that I felt that Wright was going to have, which was the super reliever type of role, and I thought that Eduardo Rodriguez might fall into that category as well. It was really taken over by Nathan Evaldi on days that he wasn't starting. Um, you know, he was exceptional coming in and you know, throwing multiple innings or throwing the eighth inning when needed, you know, bridging the gap between the starters to the, you know, to, to Craig Kimball or from the starters to the setup men. So, um, you know, you look at it and uh, Cora made the point early in the postseason that um, the Nathan Evaldi would play a big role, sort of his Charlie, the Houston Astros, Charlie Morton, of you know 2017, what Charlie Morton did for the East Nationals in 2017, and we definitely saw it. I mean, you know, Abaldi made some, you know big time money this postseason with his performance. Yeah, and we well, we can talk a little bit about that too. But uh, you, you know, comparing it to the Houston Astros, it's very obvious that last year, uh, you know, Cora's the bench coach on the Astros who went on to win the World Series. Uh, they had a, a similar type of strategy of employing starting pitchers uh, in their bullpen to kind of fill some of the holes that the Astros bullpen had last year. You talked about Charlie Morton. Uh, there was Lance McCullers uh, who got in there. Uh, you know, they, they kind of mixed and matched. And, you know, I think Cora, I guess, kind of learned that experience when he was in Houston last year and employed it here because, of course, one of the things we had talked about when I last had you on, which I believe was two months ago today, uh, was that the uh, you know the Red Sox didn't have an eighth inning option, so it looked like 
Cora did the best with what he was given and decided to, you know, employ the same strategy. And you, you mentioned Evaldi, but, you know, Rick Porcello also pitched the eighth inning. And, you know, Chris Sale got in there, uh, you know, even uh, David Price. I mean, they all, all the starters kind of took a turn uh, pitching in in that eighth inning to kind of fill that hole uh, to try to bridge it to uh, to Kimbrel, uh, you know, we can say what we want about Kimbrel's performances, and you already did. But uh, you know those guys, uh, you know any of those starters when they came in uh, to pitch that eighth inning throughout the postseason just did a tremendous job. Yeah, and uh, so I mean, you know, you look at it, and you know, Spike Brad Ziegler posted uh, tweeted out something interesting during uh, postseason. He was like. You know why are starters asked to do more during the regular season? Why why aren't you know relievers relied on as much as they are during the postseason, uh, or as, during the postseason as they are during the regular season? Well, you know what starters are better. <laughs> the reason that starters are starters is because they're better than relievers, and. Um, you know, well, they were on this team. I mean, you know, it depends how your team is constructed. But on this Red Sox team for 2018, I think the starters were better. Uh, the bullpen just, you know, they didn't really have anybody who could who could step in and pitch the eighth inning. But there's certainly other teams in baseball that that have those eighth inning guys. I mean, you can you know mention you can like the Yankees, for example. This is that usually, and this has been historically in baseball, is that usually a guy goes to the bullpen because he's not he's not good enough to sock. So what I'm saying is, is that, you know, with, you know, and I mean, it's changing. The game's changing because, you know, pitchers are um, developing into relievers earlier in the minor league in the minor leagues now because of the emphasis they're putting on bullpen and the importance they're putting on bullpen. I mean, you look at Josh Hader from the Brewers and, you know, how, what he did. And, you know, it's incredible how he can, you know, throw three innings in the postseason. He was like the Andrew Miller, but... You know, in general, with this team, a lot of these relievers that the Red Sox had were put into the bullpen because they weren't, you know, they weren't starters. And, um, you know, so, I mean, you know, when you have Rick Purcell or Chris Sale or Anthony Navaldi throwing an eighth inning, you know, you can rely on that, <laughs> definitely. You feel good with that sure. crowd score. Yeah, and I think the other plus there is that by using those starters to fill the eighth inning, what you ended up having, and I think this might have been why Joe Kelly and Ryan Brazier and Matt Barnes all pitched so effectively, none of them were asked to be that eighth inning bridge to the closer Kimbrel. Instead, they kind of slotted back to earlier spots in the game, and maybe those were just spots where, frankly, they were more comfortable and it allowed them to pitch you know, more effectively, which they certainly did. Yeah, and I think it will go a long way. You know, it's funny. Cora said Eduardo Rodriguez's performance in what was it, Game Four, will go a long way towards next year and helping him, you know, gain confidence and taking that next step. Well, I think a lot of it with the bullpen, that will go a long way. You know, Brazier, Barnes, Barnes has struggled in the second half. Um, you know, in his career, but. You know, the performance that he had in the postseason, I think a lot of this will, will go a long way in helping these guys and showing them what they're capable of, you know, in, in next year and the year after. And, you know, this, this can only help this bullpen, in, in, you know, in, in future seasons. Yeah, and I, I definitely want to get back and talk about this, especially how it's going to relate, like you say, to future seasons or, you know, even more specifically next year. But I, I need to revisit uh, this postseason. And, you know, the two 
adjectives, I think, that best describe the 2018 Red Sox during the month of October. Resilient and relentless. I mean, the way the hitters worked the count, you know, the team's average when hitting 420 with two outs and runners in scoring position over a 14-game stretch where they, they won 11 of the 14 games. And then, of course, you know, there was also just the, the pitching in general. And, you know, the way... The other thing is you could say that certainly the Red Sox in a year where, you know, they won 108 regular season games and they went 11-3 and in the postseason. And if you want to throw in their 22-9 and best record in spring training, I mean, they won 141 and lost only 66 this year. That's a 681 winning percentage uh, starting in spring training. So anytime they stepped on the field and played any kind of a game, I mean, you know, despite all that, I think the thing that, that, that stands out to me was – the little bit of adversity they did deal with in the postseason in the sense that losing game two at home to the New York Yankees in the ALDS and having all, you know, having a large majority of the, the local Boston sports media just go, well, yeah, they lost the home field and, you know, they, they're not coming back to Fenway for a fifth game and, you know, well, which they didn't, but I think they, that's not the reason they said it. Uh, you know, and then they lost the first game at Fenway to the Astros in the ALCS and then even game three of the World Series at Dodger Stadium. I mean, the Dodgers win one game against the Red Sox. The only way they can beat the Red Sox they have to go 18 innings to do it. They have to actually play two games to win just one. But that and the way that even that game ended and the way Evaldi pitched so heroically or brilliantly. But, you know, I'm even thinking to myself as I watch the end of that game, wow, their pitching staff's going to be in big trouble the rest of this series. And yet that didn't seem to phase them either. They just came right back. Uh, despite falling behind 4 nothing in game four, you know, into the seventh inning. I mean, they just... There were just so many times, you know, each time they had that little bit of adversity, they were able to bounce back, and uh, it just, it did, it never seemed to phase them. So I think that's where the resiliency comes in, and again, the relentlessness too, as they just kept, you know, pounding and pounding pitcher after pitcher on on three of the better teams in baseball, the the, the Yankees, Astros, and Dodgers. Yeah, I mean, it was it was unbelievable what they were able to do with, you know, two outs and runners in scoring positions. That number that you brought up was you know, insane, and, you know, the, the Dodgers didn't hit well with, with, you know, runners in scoring position, and, you know, that was, that was a big difference, and, yeah, you know, the adversity that they faced after Game 3, especially, especially Game 3 in the World Series, where, you know, you um, you know you use Evaldi, who's supposed to be your Game 4 starter, and then you have to go to Eduardo Rodriguez, who hasn't started a game since September 20th, and, you know, and, and he hadn't pitched much at all in, in October. And when he did pitch, he was kind of shaky at best. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, when he, that was a really good performance by him to come out in Game 4. And, you know, he should have been out of that game anyway when he gave up the three-run homer to, to Puig. It was a grand slam or was it a three-run homer? I don't know. But uh, it was he, a three-run homer, yeah. When he gave up that home run to Puig, he should have been out of there anyway. But, yeah, I mean, the resilience, um, you know, the ability to um, – you know, the, you know, the kind of overcome some of that adversity that they face. I mean, you see the, the Chris Sale dugout speech, you know, during game, um, was it game four? But, you know, you look back and, and a lot of their motivation in game four was, was Evaldi, you know, after, after him in game three, what he gave them. They were motivated by that. They wanted to win for him. And what, and also what, Alex Cora, his message to them after Game Three, you know, after that Game Three loss. So, you know, I think that Cora was the right guy to lead it, and you know, 
he he had the message every day, you know, put that game behind you. And, you know, it's funny, like Matt Barnes said it, you know, I said to him, was there a lot of pressure on you guys because you were a hundred and, you know, eight win team in the regular season, best regular season in Red Sox history, you know, to finish it off. Is there pressure to finish this thing off and, and get the championship because that 108 wins wouldn't have meant much unless you guys finished it off. And he said there really wasn't pressure. He felt like they just treated the postseason like they did the regular season. They just went one game at a time. If they lost, they put that one behind them. And, um, you know, they went to the next day expecting to win. And that's what they did throughout the regular season. They expected to win, and that's why they won. So, yeah, I mean, that's... It's really what there was no difference between the regular season and the in the postseason. The other thing during the postseason that amazed me so much was their ability to play so well on the road. I mean, we saw the last two postseasons they got down 0-2 in Cleveland and 0-2 in, in Houston, and this team was a juggernaut on the road. They actually played cleaner, you know, you know, cleaner defense. Um, better hitting and better pitching on the road than they did at Fenway Park in this in this uh, in the, throughout this postseason. Yep, yeah, sure. No, you're right. I mean, no question. They, uh, again, the only road loss in the postseason was the 18 inning game uh, three uh, against the Dodgers. I got to ask Chris, just again personally, what was it like for you covering a game that had to be one of the longest games you ever covered? Uh, 18 innings, what seven and a half hours almost? I mean, just you know, talk about what like what even you were going through just covering it. I mean, did you did you have enough room on your scorecard to get all the innings in, or how did you uh, manage to do that? Because uh, I actually, the, you know, I don't keep score during the game oh, because you know, like you I don't. never keep score during <laughs> the game. I used to when I covered high school baseball back in the day, but you know, I take advantage of a lot of the you know the stuff that they give you now and. You know, okay. I'm constantly looking at you know when I'm when I'm covering a game, I'm constantly looking at like baseballs the dot, seeing how fast you know certain guys hit a ball, or seeing velocity of pitches and certain instances, things like that. I'm not I'm not actually keeping score, so I didn't have any uh, problem with uh, you know with the uh, scorecard. But yeah, okay. it was a game where it was like you know, and it didn't feel like seven hours and twenty minutes, and that's just because I'm working. And, you know, you, you're, you're trying to plan, you know, you're trying to see what you're going to write, and, you know, you're, you're, you're waiting for something to happen, and, you know, there's so much going on where, you know, Kinsler makes the error after the other error allowed the Red Sox to score in the bottom half or the top half of the 13th inning. Right. So it, it actually wasn't that tough. <laughs> it really wasn't like, it wasn't like, it just felt like, you know, uh, regular game, it, it really didn't. But it, but when you look back on it, you're like, wow, seven seven hours and twenty minutes. That's that's insane. It is. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, uh, you know, again, we're talking with Red Sox beat writer uh, Christopher Smith from MassLive.com, and he just kind of lo- uh, lowered the fourth, uh, the, was it the fourth wall there? He kind of dropped it in front uh, just by saying that you don't keep score, which I guess is kind of maybe maybe that's uh, the new era of beat writers, you know, the, the younger beat writers, maybe like yourself, a lot of them don't uh, keep score. But all right, well, let me ask you this. You said you were able to focus more on other aspects of that game. I mean, were you just marveling inning by inning? Inning, watching Evaldi there is, is that uh, as he just kept going out there firing you know triple digit fastballs uh, and, and you know just blowing away you know Dodger hitters uh, in the late innings of that game. Yeah, what what, what um, 
Now, I don't want to take anything away from Evaldi here because what he did was amazing. I mean, to go out there and, you know, six, what was it, six innings of release. Six innings and 97 pitches, I believe, just just shy of 100. (laughs) That's late into the night, too. And, you know, and and players after that are calling it one of the best performances they've seen in the postseason. You know, Red Sox players, there's certain guys tweeting about it, you know, around the league, like Trevor Bauer and everything. And you know what's a crying shame? I'll let you finish, Chris, but uh, MLB's been replaying all these uh, Red Sox postseason games, but they're only replaying the victories. So they're not replaying that 18-inning game, and I'm not sure how much of that you'd have to crunch down or condense. Maybe they're planning to do it later. I hope they do. I'd like to see that game again, not not for seven hours long, but maybe they can condense it down to three or something. But I, I would like to kind of go back and, and revisit the it, you know the Evaldi performance without having to wait for the DVD to come out. Yeah, but, you know, a lot of times, the, you know, when you get into those extra inning games, and I'm not saying because with his ability to keep it going for six innings and throw in the triple digits, but on both sides, a lot of those, a lot of them pressing, you know, to get the big hit and to end that game. And, you know, you had two teams that were popping a lot of balls up into the, you know, the Dodgers were mostly popping balls up into the infield. I, I wrote about it. I said on Twitter, I said, there's just a lot of, you know, balls that aren't even getting to the outfield. You know, there's just a lot of, you know, two teams struggling to get the ball into the outfield. So, um, you know, nothing to take away from Valdi's performance, but there's two pressing offenses right there, you know, both pressing to to, to win a game. And, um, you know, but, I mean, what Valdi did going into the late innings at night and, you know, throughout the entire postseason, I mean, he was just incredible. To You know, we, we saw the dominance against the Yankees all year, so you could kind of, you know, expect it or, or you know, didn't wow you maybe as much against the Yankees in his first start, but then when he does it against the Houston Astros, he does it, you know, in his start against the Houston Astros and then all of his release appearances, and then he dominates for six innings against the Dodgers. It's just like, you know, and I mean, he, he's he, one play in that game in particular, it, it's, it's interesting, and I, I saw it right away mm-hmm. in that 18-inning, in that extra-inning game. Um I wonder if Eduardo Nunez had to go into the stands to catch that ball. Um, it was a nice play and all, but I, I wonder if he could have prevented himself from going into the stands. And if he did, the ball—if he did, the runner wouldn't have gone to second base, and <laughs> the ball up the middle would right. have made the play on. That would have been a different story, and they would have probably won in 13 innings. Well, can you blame the fact for Nunez there that he, uh, you know, when he first came into the major leagues with the Yankees, he was playing alongside Derek Jeter, who was kind of his mentor, and, you know, because they both played shortstop, and, you know, Nunez was playing a lot of short and middle infield then. Uh, So he's watching, you know, he's probably channeling back to that play during the 04 season when Jeter dove into the stands at Yankee Stadium against the Red Sox and uh, made that play. So I think maybe Nunez was just channeling his inner Jeter. He might have been. You know, he was a big Jeter guy before he even, you know, before he came to the Yankees. I mean, when he signed with the Yankees, they brought him out, you know, they brought Jeter. Right when he signed with the Yankees, he was, you know, a 16-, 17-year-old kid. They brought him to meet Jeter. Um, so, yeah, he was a big Jeter fan from the beginning. But, 
Uh, just as an aside while we're talking about Nunez, I just love watching him. I, I love that big smile on his face all the time. It's just so infectious. I, I'm sure his teammates probably agree. Uh, the, the huge hit, you know, that three-run homer he had, in the, the pinch hit three-run oh, yeah. homer in game one against the Dodgers. I mean, just, you know, I, I know he's probably going to be a little overpaid, pick, you know, as he uh, picked up his own uh, player option for $5 million next year. And I know he had kind of a down year in the regular season, but I still, I still love having him around. I just, he's a... You know, he, he's a good influence, I, I think, for, you know, the rest of his teammates. And I think they love having him. And like I say, he's just got that, you know, you watch him. It just looks like he's having so much fun out there, which is what baseball's supposed to be, you know, at its at its bare level. And, and he just, he kind of exhibits it all the time. So, you know, I, I couldn't be happier for him that he, you know, helped the Red Sox, you know, several times, uh, you know, throughout the postseason. Yeah, he's got the best laugh, too. I don't know. I actually wrote oh, right, a yeah. story on him last. Right. He has one of the funniest laughs. But, uh, yeah, I mean, he's a, he, it should be interesting. You know, like, he obviously, I, I talked to him in, I think it was August or September, and he said he wasn't 100% bad coming back from that knee injury the previous year. And so it should be interesting, you know, yeah, as you said, overpaid going into next season. That is correct. But it should be interesting to see if he can get back to being more of the player it was in 2017 next year, uh, you know, two years out from that injury instead of one year out. Sure. Of course, where that role's going to be, I mean, you'd have to expect they're going to play Devers more next year. So, I mean, at best, he's going to be a utility guy, and he probably at, you know, 31, 32 years old kind of recognizes that anyway. Still, he'll take the big contract and, and just be kind of a helpful spare part. Uh, you know, but getting back to some other postseason performers, I know you started at the top of uh, uh, this uh, Toddcast talking about David Price and his performance, and we do have to go back. You said you weren't surprised by that. I have to admit... I kind of agree with your general take because, or at least when it got to game five against Houston, when they were up 3-1 and he came back and pitched on short rest and on paper, it looked like everything was going against him. But then when you stopped and thought about it, the biggest problem David Price seems to have or has had, especially in his time with the Red Sox, has been between the ears. And the fact that in that game five start, it was short rest. So he didn't he didn't have that build up to think and think and think about the game. And uh, I, I think that played favorably for him. And then once he got that win, that first win as a starter, I just figured at that point, okay, the you know, the, the, the giant, uh, you know, the 800-pound gorilla or the grand piano or whatever was on his back has been removed, it's been lifted, and the sky's the limit. I thought for sure he was going to have a great World Series coming off that win, uh, you know, that clinching game in the ALCS, and, and he certainly did. You could and you could make a, a certainly a, a very strong argument that he should have been the MVP of the World Series for uh, for what he was able to do in, in, in a short five-game series. He won two and came out of the bullpen in another, and I warmed up, I think, in the other two, or at least the, one of them. Yeah, he should have been the MVP. Uh, what, why I thought that he was capable of a dominant performance, uh, I guess that I was like the typical Boston media after starting 2016 in Cleveland. You know, he gives up the Grand Slam to Lonnie Chisenhall, and, you know, I piled on just like everybody else. And, you know, this guy can't pitch in the postseason. He can't pitch in the postseason. Well, how about game two of the LDS against the Yankees? You know, two-thirds of an inning. Yeah. But what I did was I decided, you know, after, you know, in this year, during this year, I decided, well, 
maybe maybe we're maybe it's being unfair. Maybe there's you know let's let's break it down inning by inning because maybe maybe we're being a little unfair on him. Uh, it's a small sample size, and I know that it was you know nine stars or something coming into this year. Maybe it's a you know it, it's but that's relatively a small sample size, nine starts. And it um, is, but it is spread out over several years. So I think that. You know, that's another way to look at it, I guess. But anyway. Yeah. Okay. But yeah. So, so what I did was I went inning by inning, game by game, and kind of looked at David Price. And you know, there's games that he just pitched really well in throughout his postseason career. And, you know, I mean, there was a there was a game two and uh, game two of the ALCS in 2015 against the Royals where he retired. You know, he he allowed a leadoff hit to begin that game and then retired the next 18 straight. And if they take him out of the game after the sixth inning, he's retired 18 straights, giving up one run. Instead, they leave him in. The blue pit drops between um, Castillo and whoever was playing. Right. I think it was uh, Ryan Gomes uh, who was playing um, second base. Sure. Uh, blue pit drops, and they both thought the other one had it. Um, they both didn't have it. It drops. And just kind of everything escalated during that inning. There was a guy that was sent in, you know, a guy that a, a hit and run. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it would have been a perfect double play ball if it wasn't a hit and run. Right. Well, I think to your point, Chris, and I, and I agree with that, I think if you if you look at the series of all the postseason starts, there were quite a few times he had some bad luck or maybe, they, you know, they left him in too long. And like you just said, in, in that situation with, with the Royals. Uh, but, yeah, I mean – but you had to be thinking to yourself to some degree, I mean, after that poor performance in Game 2 against the Yankees, and then even the Game 2 against Houston in the ALCS, he was eh, he was better, but he was still kind of shaky. I mean... Well, at that point, after the, after, game, after the Game 2 of the... Um, after his first start, Game mm-hmm. 2 of the ALDS against the Yankees, now, I wasn't extremely confident for him going into that one because of his, you know, resume against the Yankees for the past three years. I mean, yeah. just, they just have it. He hasn't hit, he hasn't pitched well against them. So my feeling after that game was, uh, you know, he had pitched, you know, and in addition to that, you know, game where he retired 18 straight, you know, another game where he had eight innings, two runs, you know, he just hadn't gotten that win. Mm. And, you know, in the playoffs, in the regular season, no one thinks about the win anymore. Everybody just thinks about ERA, FIP, WHIP, all these advanced stats. And, no one thinks about wins. I mean, we're, we're going to see um, Jacob DeGrom win the, the NL Cy Young probably with, you know, just whatever it was, eight, nine wins or whatever he had. But in the postseason, that's the stat everybody's talking about with David Price. It's wins, wins, wins. He hasn't gotten the win in, in so well, admittedly, I, Chris, you can admit that a win in the postseason probably means an awful lot more, especially with a smaller sample size than it does in the regular season. So, you know, any Benny pitcher I mean, who gets help, a win, it's if you help your team if you put them in a position to win. You, you, you have no. You a lot of times you don't. I mean, you don't um, have an influence. You cannot have an influence. You might not have an influence on a win. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. But. Or, or, you know, some luck can happen that, that you just, you know, doesn't, a win doesn't happen. So what I'm saying is, is that at that point, he's like, you know, he, he was probably thinking to himself, well, 
you know, I felt like he was probably thinking to himself, well, you know, I pitched well enough to have a win, and it's, you know, and this happens, and it's just like, and then it was probably between his, you know, between his ears, like, you know, and so I felt at that point, like, this might be another bad postseason, because it's just, you know, he just probably can't take this, you know, I mean, another another disaster like this to start it off, and, and everybody questioning him again. Well, right, well, again, just to that point, uh, the fact that Cora said, you know, and obviously Sale, the fact he didn't bounce back quickly after pitching game one of both the LCS and the World Series kind of played a part in this, but the fact that Cora felt confident enough to go back to David Price in both of those series on short rest, uh, I mean, do you think ultimately that was that was proved to be the advantage and maybe what kind of helped Price break through because he didn't have those four days to keep thinking about that next start and, oh, here it is, day one, day two, okay, now I'm going to start this game. Instead, you know, Cora just kind of throws him into the fire and uh, because Price has less time to think and more time to pitch, I mean, that, that seemed to be what allowed him to break through in that, that LCS clincher. See, I think that that's, um, I think that that might have something to do with it, but when you look at it, I mean, the most runs he had given up in, you know, his postseason career was in the seventh inning, in the sixth and seventh inning combined, you know, heading into this postseason. Um, you know, so you look at it and you're like, well, if he was thinking too much, it would, you know, it would it would escalate earlier in the game, you know? So the the most important thing with Price, whether, you know, we look at that, whether it's between his, his, you know, ears or anything, it's it's in his head. Um, He didn't allow home runs. He allowed one home run in that Dodgers start the first, you know, the first pitch he threw, but Houston, uh, the two two Dodgers starts and the Houston start, one home run. And, you know, and that's the difference because, you know, going into the, after that Yankee start, I think it was, how you calculate it, I think it was 49% of the runs that he had allowed in his postseason career, maybe it was 47%, had come on home runs, you know, had scored on home runs. Well, that's a lot, so, yeah. Exactly. So I'm not saying, like, you know, 47% home runs, but you know what I mean? Like, you know, so I'm combining, like, three-run homers and two-run homers. Of the of the runs that scored in starts, forty seven percent had scored on home runs. So the home runs have killed him throughout his postseason career. I mean, you look back to that start he had against the Red Sox, you know, and again when he was with Tampa Bay, he gave up two home runs to David Ortiz in that start, right. you know, in, in two thousand thirteen. So what I'm saying is, is the big difference with David Price in the last three starts of you know this postseason was his ability to keep the ball in the ballpark. And, you know, and I think that was pitch selection. Sure. Yeah, I mean, ironically enough, I'm just looking at the, the full postseason stats. Price actually gave up more home runs than any other Red Sox pitcher, allowing four, although he also led uh, uh, the team with innings pitched, uh, so four uh, home runs in 26 I'm innings. I'm assuming three of them were in that Yankees game, right? I think, I think you're right. I think three of them were in the Yankee huh. game. The fourth one was, like you said, the first pitch to to you know to David Freeze, which, again, you even just look at that game, the, the final game of the season. Uh, Price gives up a home run on the first pitch, and then he's just perfect are virtually perfect from there on out. I mean, he doesn't allow the Dodgers anything uh, the, the rest of that game. And he's paired up against a guy who might be the National League 
you know, to some degree, you know, I think Price and Clayton Kershaw kind of both get talked about similarly because they have both put up great regular season numbers, but not necessarily good postseason numbers. And I know Kershaw's not, you know, he wasn't over as a starter. I think his career postseason record now is like nine and nine or something. It's it's not but again, that kind of just goes to the point that his his postseason numbers aren't as good as, as what he's done in the regular season. Yeah, and you don't see that um, that often anymore where a guy, you know, pitches on short rest in the postseason. You see it when the teams, you know, it's a game four of a five-game series and, you know, they're they're about to be out of it, you know, and they need their, you know, they, they're going with their rights to start it. But, I mean, you, you know, you don't see that that much anymore. Yeah, you're right. And that's all, you know, uh, the Red Sox were ahead, you know, uh, they, they didn't throw, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, the Red Sox last year, when they had a healthy Chris Sale, I mean, they brought him in in relief in that game four, but they didn't start him when they were, you know, when when it was do or die, you know. So, I mean, you don't see that that often, and a lot of pitchers aren't good at doing that. You know, Kershaw hasn't been great at doing that, and they, they've asked him to do that a lot with the Dodgers. And so, for him to do that twice this postseason, and, you know, and I feel like, I mean, yeah, um, Chris Hill wasn't exactly healthy uh, at the end of the year, but for Cora, but Cora felt that that was the best that was the best way to win that game and to seal off that series was to go with Price instead of Chris Hill. Well, right. that, well that, yeah. I mean, you look at the statistics for the whole postseason. Price was was that horse. I mean, you know, maybe with Evaldi as well. I mean, both those those were the only two pitchers for the Red Sox who went over twenty innings in the in the postseason, right? And and because Sale's uh, health was in question the whole month of October, you needed Price to step up and basically uh, justify that thirty one million dollar a year contract he's making, which of course he also has now opted uh, another four years uh, for, uh, because now he loves pitching in Boston, right? <laughs> Pitching in Boston at this point, right? He's going to be the king right now. I seriously like he. Uh, I mean, people say like he still can do wrong, but when you win a championship and you lead your team that way, I mean, Boston fans are going to love you forever, right? I mean, I, I sure. don't know. I just well, I just, how about they? They still love Dave Roberts, the Dodgers manager. Look at the reception he was getting in the World Series. So I, I just don't. I I heard you know, and I I wasn't at the Celtics game the other night, but from what I heard. Uh, from other reporters and stuff, and people talking on television and the radio, David Price got like ten times more of an ovation than any other Red Sox. Team. He did, yes, uh, he definitely did. So, I mean, the fans, uh, you know, I, I think if part of it is, I think a large part of it is obviously what he did in the postseason. I think there's a small aspect of it too that he kind of proved the whole or proved many of the media wrong. Not necessarily you, Chris Smith, but a lot of other, uh, you know, uh, writers who wanted to hang their hat on. This guy's a failure and he'll always be a failure. Uh, he'll just never do it when it counts. And, and he finally did and kind of, you know, shut those critics up. Yeah, I mean, you know what? Um, I had no, no uh, problem with what David Price said after the game in, in reference to the media, you know, holding the holding the cards. I don't think that the media thinks of it as a game like that. And uh, so, so some media were kind of like, you know, well, well, what is he even talking about here? You know, we don't think of it as a game. But you know what? He had been criticized for, for years. And this was beyond, you know, before Boston. 
you know, I remember in 2015 when he was pitching for the Toronto Blue Jays and he was getting asked the same questions. So, you know, I mean, he deserves to, um, you know, he deserves to, to you know, to, to stick it a little bit to the media. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. No, I, I'm I'm with you, Chris. Uh, definitely. Uh, you know, it, it's funny. Every time I, I bring you on, I feel like we could probably spend a whole two-hour show uh, or, a, or a podcast talking about David Price. I mean, certainly uh, for good reason. There's always a lot of material with him. But uh, kind of moving on to some of the other uh, performers. Again, we, we talked about, I brought up the stat earlier. Uh, now I have it in front of me uh, officially. Uh, in the, uh, the postseason, uh, the Red Sox hitters, uh, they, they hit 420 with a 567 on base percentage, a 780 slugging percentage, and a 1347 OPS with two outs and runners in scoring position through the entire 14 game postseason. And 45 of the 81 runs they scored in the postseason came with two outs. I mean, those are just some incredible numbers. Again, just kind of going back to the, how relentless this team is, how they kept rallies alive. You can go back over, you know, so you can pick out so many of the times during that postseason that, that, Player stepped up and again. It was unsung heroes. You know, we talked about Nunez's pinch hit three run homer. Mitch Moreland had the pinch hit three run homer in uh, in uh, game uh, four, which turned things around there. You know, and it's also funny. I, you know, Chris, I'm remembering the last time I had you on was uh, the Red Sox had just won that game in Atlanta when. Uh, when Brendan Phillips hit the big home run and they were down seven to one, and there was that stat that no team all season in baseball had come back from six runs down in the eighth inning or later, and the Red Sox did. Well, it was almost kind of the equivalent of the Red Sox being down four nothing after uh, you know six innings in in Game Four of the World Series against the Dodgers. I mean, everyone thought you know I was thinking it. You might have been thinking it too. Oh, this is two two. This is about to turn into a best of three World Series, and instead the Red Sox scored nine runs in the last three innings uh, uh, just you know with kind of a relentless assault uh, Steve Pierce uh, and, and his performance uh, what he was able to do to, to earn the MVP honors uh, you know just talk about him and some of the other role players because it's interesting uh, guys like JD Martinez and Mookie Betts and Xander Bogarts really you know you look at their full postseason numbers and you know Mar I guess Martinez was okay he hit 300 but I mean some of these other guys I mean you know Betts was only 210 Bogarts 224 I mean, you know, certainly guys who were big performers during the season really didn't, uh, you know, do as much uh, when October rolled around. Yeah, so I think that that was, you know, important was, you know, with Martinez in particular, a lot of his hits came with, you know, with runners in scoring position and two out. You know, he was clutch, so he didn't have the greatest of postseasons, even though he had 300, but a lot of, uh, if you look at, you know, fully through it, but, you know, he had some big hits. Uh, well, he, he got the whole postseason started with the three-run homer in Game One against the Yankees, and then exactly you know, and the big hit in Game Two of the World Series. Uh, you know, the it was two-two. Uh, Pierce had just walked to you know, force in the tying run, and that that great at bat, and uh, Martinez drops the single in front of Puig, who arguably might have been playing way too deep there to try to prevent uh, you know a, a long double or something, and instead he got burned on a you know a good piece of hitting by uh, JD. Yeah, so I mean, I think that you know he was really good, um, but I think yeah, Mookie Betts and, and Xander really didn't have it this postseason, and um, you know, and so it's something Mookie has to prove going into other postseasons. I don't know if that's fair. Small sample size, as I said, was Price, and you know, Mookie had a three hundred batting average or went four for ten or whatever the previous postseason, and maybe it's 
not as, as big of an issue as you know some make it out to be. But yeah, maybe he needs to prove something. But yeah, the the you know guys like Pierce stepped up, and you know you look at it, and um, you know it was, it, it, another guy that was hot throughout the entire postseason was Devers. I mean, you know he had yeah. huge hits. Um, you know, crit- critical times, and you know he he did he did last year in the postseason too. You know, in that short series, that four game series against the Houston Astros. So he obviously has an eye for some RBIs and, and big spots. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, this the World Series was just set up for a guy like Steve Pierce. You know, with left handed starters for Dodger for the Dodgers and his ability to hit left handed pitching and. You know, he just capitalized on his opportunity. And then you look at guys that came off the bench, like the Mitch Moreland home run, you know, that three-run homer when they were down 4 nothing in game four. You know, um, Cora put guys in the right spots, and, you know, he just had that magical, you know, touch, magical decisions, whatever you want to call it, to put the guys up, the right guys at the right time, whether it was Nunez and the other, you know, in game one or – you know, it was uh, Mitch Moreland, but, you know, the pinch hits were, you know, incredible. You know, the pinch hitting in game four. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it was, in, you know, J.D. Martinez said it afterwards, it took all 25 players to win this thing. And he's right because, you know, guys like McPete Batson and Xander Bogarts didn't, you know, particularly perform up to the, the way that they did during the regular season. Yeah, unless we, uh, you know, forget about uh, Jackie Bradley Jr. I know he only hit 200 the whole postseason, but of his eight hits, he All was able to drive. Hits. Yeah, he drove his eight hits drove in ten runs, including uh, three home runs. Uh, one of the reasons why, uh, you know, obviously he had the big grand slam in the the ALCS, and he was also the big reason why Game Three ended up going until uh, 3:30 in the morning uh, here, uh, you know, East Coast time. But uh, but you know, you talk about those two, uh, you know, about the pinch hitting two of the Red Sox. I believe, I think I read this somewhere, the Red Sox hit two three-run pinch hit home runs in the World Series, Nunez and then Moreland. I believe the previous pinch hit three-run homer that had been hit came by Bernie Carbo in 1975 in that infamous Game 6, uh, the game that everyone remembers for the Fisk home run, but it, if it wasn't for Bernie's uh, pinch hit three-run homer in the eighth inning that tied the game, they never would have got into the 12th inning. That's crazy. I didn't hear that statistic, but yeah, I mean the pinch hits. I mean the pinch hitting was was unbelievable, and they credit like Cora for that, getting them ready and prepared, and you know knowing when they're going to go into the game, ahead, you know ahead of time, and you know that goes a long way, I guess, when they're down in the cage and preparing, and you know when they they can you know prepare, look at the statistics of who they might be facing or what reliever they're probably going to face and what's going on and stuff maybe two innings ahead of time. Um, that goes a long way, and, you know, we saw it this postseason. Yeah, actually, just uh, some other crazy stats I uh, found here. Uh, well, yeah, no, Red Sox, uh, three-run pinch hit home runs by the Red Sox in the World Series, right? Bernie Carbo, 1975, and then Nunez and Moreland. I, and I believe, yeah, I, I guess it was only Red Sox. I think they were just looking at Red Sox hitters to do it. I, so that may not be everyone, although I can't think of too many other three three-run pinch hit homers. But uh, another fun fact, that 18-inning game three that took seven hours and 20 minutes to play, apparently uh, it, that one game alone surpassed the entire 1939 World Series in which the Yankees swept the Reds in four games that took a combined seven hours and five minutes. 
four games, yeah. seven hours and five minutes. I know it was 1939, but still, uh, yeah, that's just, yeah, that's just crazy. Uh, you know, and there's there's just so many crazy stats you can kind of pull back. You know, just looking through all these these uh, postseason games, it's just, uh, you know, while I I think you know a lot of folks, especially. Uh, you know, some of the, the people following the team every day said, well, you know, you won 108 games in the regular season. You got to close this out, and you kind of expected them to win the whole thing. The way they did it was, was totally unexpected because, you know, there were just so many uh, so many unsung heroes and, and whatnot. Uh, you know, again, that bullpen, a, a 271 ERA uh, in 63 postseason innings, a 187 opposing batting average, too. Uh, it was just uh, – you know, but let's I, – I guess now uh, – well, let me uh, ask you a couple other things here, too. Uh, first of all, the postseason celebration, Game 5, uh, did you – were you in the locker room? And if you were, did you manage to avoid getting drenched by the uh, the champagne? And if you did, what's your secret? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I've been pretty good at getting uh, – you know, for – up until this year, uh, I've been good at avoiding it. Uh, so I guess was it – I'm trying to think. New York and Houston weren't very good. I, I kind of got it in New York and Houston a little bit, uh, just because you know you have to go and interview. Um, you know you have to go in there and interview players and you know get the story. And there's champagne balls being uh, all over the place. You know sprayed all over the place. And and if if a player that you're interviewing you know did something well and and you know and, and everybody sees him getting interviewed, they're going to start spraying him. So. You try to avoid it the best of your, the, to the best of your ability. On the, I took the train home um, from New York right after that game, that clinching game. I took the mm-hmm. two twenty or the two forty a.m. train back from New York. I like to do that. Wow. Um, okay. Yeah, and um, I was I smelled like you know liquor on the whole way back, <laughs> and my my um, shoes smell like liquor from three postseason celebrations. But the Dodgers won. The clubhouse is so small that it. It's very difficult to even get a little wet because, you know, you're in there and the, the team is celebrating in the middle and the reporters are just on the outside. So basically in the World Series, it was just like interview as many people on the field as possible and then the players go in and celebrate in the clubhouse afterwards and you kind of you know see it from afar because the, the clubhouse is just so small there. Yeah, and then and then of course uh, you know ultimately the trophy, which has had uh, quite a week, uh, well about eight days now. The Red Sox have had that that 2018 World Series trophy in their possession, and it's uh, it's done quite a bit of traveling. Uh, you know, from uh, the Celtics uh, game last week to uh, you know uh, yeah, obviously the you know the, the the duck boat parade, even where it got uh, got slightly damaged, and uh, then uh, traveled uh, to Puerto Rico over the weekend, but then came back in time for the Sunday. Sunday night uh, Patriots game last night against the Green Bay Packers. Apparently, I think at least I heard that uh, we're recording this on Monday night, uh, that uh, the Bruins game uh, going on uh, while we're uh, we're doing this, uh, I, I believe that they're going to complete the, uh, the, the the circle of all the Boston teams by bringing the uh, the trophy into the uh, into the uh, the garden again uh, for the for the Bruins hockey game. So it, it's been a, a quite a week for for the World Series trophy. But you know, and just kind of tying that back a little bit to uh, the fact that uh, Alex Cora, the manager, uh, rookie manager, uh, wins uh, what what a year, and he gets to bring the trophy to his homeland uh, in in Puerto Rico. Uh, just uh, again, talk. I mean, we've talked about Cora quite a bit, and. Uh, what he's done. Is there anything that he did during the postseason that made you even 
maybe kind of admire what he's been able to do in his rookie campaign uh, even more as a manager? Um, you know, I just think, you know, he, he's a good in-game decision, a good in-game manager. And, um, you know, it, the decisions with pinch hitters and certain things, you know, I, I question some things that he did during the postseason, you know, leaving in Eduardo Rodriguez too long, which he admits himself. And, mm-hmm. you know, not in game two against the Yankees, you know, not, not having Brock Holt even, you know, having a bat in that game. Um, there were certain things that, you know, I don't agree on, but at the end of the day, for a first-year manager, he's as good as it gets as an in-game, you know, in-game manager. And I think a lot of that, um, it comes back to, you know, statistics and advanced metrics and all that. And what they did with uh, Manny Machado and, um, you know, and the shifts were just incredible all year in the data that they had and, and you know, where they were in place. Um, it was more advanced than they've ever that this team has ever been. But you know, you look at it after Manny Machado hit the double in the final game, I think, um, with with uh, was it the final game? I don't know. With with Martinez in left field, they were like, you know, get Martinez out of left field, and I think it was game four. They were like, get Martinez out of left field when Machado comes up. And they, you know, they put in Jackie Bradley in left field, switched in, switched uh, Martinez over to right field, and um, well, yeah, they so did a lot of that in Game Three as well, too, didn't they, Chris? They kind of shuffled the like even yeah. per batter back and forth. You kept seeing like Martinez go to left, then go to right, then back to left. They kind of uh, it did that. Uh, I, I particularly, I think, in that third game, they were doing a lot of that. Yeah, and you know, some of his aggressive outfield shifts that he had going on, um, you know. And, I mean, he did some things during the postseason that, you know, were unexpected. So, you know, the way that he used his bullpen and, um, you know, the confidence that he had in his guys. I mean, he said it all year. You know, he said uh, whenever we asked him about a certain player that was struggling, you know, I believe in the guy. That was that was the thing, and he showed that he believed in, in his guys in the end because, you know, he went to, you know, Barnes, Brazier, and Kelly in, in important situations. And, you know, I guess he had to in a way, but, um, you know, he went to those guys and they got the job done for him. And, and so that goes a long way. Yeah. And what about uh, Dombrowski? Do you think he kind of uh, uh, got uh, some redemption as well uh, just because, you know, guys like Evaldi and Pierce uh, were such big contributors uh, through the postseason? You know, I, I've. Um, Mixed feelings on uh, Dombrowski as a, as a general or as a president of baseball operations. In a way, I think that he he doesn't get enough credit for the roster that he put together. You know, I mean, the roster really wasn't. I mean, the roster that he took over in 2015 was just not not a good one. <laughs> and uh, you know, he inherited some good players. Obviously, uh, that was a last place team in 2015. Yeah, I mean, he had to fix the starting rotation. He really had no, he uh, he had no starting rotation. He had to fix a lot of things, and you know, I don't agree with um, philosophically with some of the things Dombrowski does. I don't think you should give away for prospects for a closer like he did. And, you know, I one who might be leaving uh, in a couple of weeks, right? <laughs> yeah, and I think we'll that, that you know you should, um, you know, I think that you should that he should right now have a 
real focus on the, you know, on building the farm system back up. But you know, from what I'm, from what some people believe, he won't have, you know, he'll still go all bored about, you know, his way of doing things, you know. And, and if he gets a trade and he can, you know, dump certain prospects for a major league talent, then he'll do it. So, but I think that the way that he built the roster up and and you know and put the final key you know spots took care of that you know Pierce and Evaldi in particular um, you know Kinsler I mean you know take it or leave it there I mean he didn't make the play in the 13th inning but he did play some good defense throughout but you know obviously Evaldi and, and Pierce they wouldn't have won the championship without those two guys and so um, you know. From, from day one in 2015, putting the roster together that they did, and then, you know, supplementing it with, you know, Evaldi and, and Pierce last minute before the trade deadline. And, uh, you know, so he does deserve a, a lot of credit. But, you know, in, in you know, in general, though, you know, he did lose some prospects. <laughs> he needs to he needs to get the farm system going again. Yeah, no, I mean, and that's I think I was kind of just so we're going to kind of probably segue into that now. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think Dombrowski also kind of benefited from riding the the coattails of Cora, and to the extent that everything Cora seemed to do and every decision Cora made in the postseason, uh, for the most part, just turned out. Uh, perfectly uh but you know looking ahead now to the to the 2019 team and you know maybe the lack of a farm system and also the you know these uh, impending free agents uh I, I know as you wrote um you know the the Red Sox extended the uh, the qualifying offer to Craig Kimbrell uh he has not officially I guess uh, either accepted it or turned it down yet that that would be for what almost 18 million dollars next year um but uh, yeah he's uh I mean, you're guessing he's going to probably turn that down because he can get a multi-year deal that uh, might pay him almost that much anyway. Yeah, John Heyman, who you know, really has a landscape for the Nationals. You know, the, the, the free agency that he believes he'll get, you know, four years, uh, eighteen million per year. So yeah, I mean, I see no way that Craig Kimbrell accepts that qualifying offer and. You know, I think the Red Sox should be a better team without Craig Kimbrell. Uh, well, certainly the way he pitched this postseason, yeah. I mean, he, I think it made it a lot easier for us Red Sox fans to accept the fact he's going to be gone uh, because I it, think the I think though he, they could be a much better they could end up a much better team just by the way that the game's going in general. I mean, you look at what Core said in spring training how he he didn't want a traditional closer how he could have, you know, Kimbrough pitch the eighth inning if that's the high leverage inning and have, you know, the setup man pitch the ninth inning instead. Well, you know, I'm not going to speak for Kimbrough here, and I don't have any inside information on, you know, what he, you know, what what his conversations were with Cora. But after Cora said that, and, you know, Kimbrough was a traditional closer the entire year. And, you know, and, and... Kimbrel's always been about saves, getting saves, and that's important, you know, to a lot of people in their arbitration years, which Kimbrel wasn't in his arbitration years, but it is important for arbitration because you get money based on saves and stuff like that. But um, but there are a lot of other pitching metric related stats that can also you can kind of throw out. Uh, 
that will show that you're just as good a pitcher whether you get a save or not. I mean, if you're you know you're keeping inherited runners from scoring and you or you pitch well from the seventh inning on, you know. Yeah, but I think saves go a long way in, in money too. For uh, that's what I'm told. By, I was told that by Zach Britton that a lot of these closers in arbitration, you know, get frustrated if they're not pitching in the ninth inning because they make more a lot more money through arbitration because of save totals. But, but anyway, at the same time, right, the problem there is that, you know, managers can't just kowtow to their quote-unquote closers just to help them get, say, you know, help them build up the well, stats. you got to try to win the baseball game in any way well, possible. The thing is is that, you know, Kimball had a lot of, I, my guess is that he had a lot of influence on, on things and that he didn't want to pitch, you know, more than three outs a game and, and that he wanted to pitch the ninth inning. And oh, yeah, I think it showed because, you know. record. Yeah. And so my feeling is if, is if they go with Brazier or if they go with Barnes or somebody else, you know, if they don't have a star closer. I mean, look at Brazier. I wrote it today. Brazier was pitching in Japan last year. You know, if you if, if he becomes your closer next year and you ask him to pitch the eighth inning or the seventh inning because that's the high leverage inning, or if you ask him, you know, record five outs, he's going to do whatever you ask him to do because he's happy to, you know, to be pitching in the big leagues. And he's not, he doesn't have that star, you know, status where he's going to have the ability to come back and say, this is what I want to do. Uh, so, you know, I think they'd be a better team without Craig Campbell, and it's not just because of the results in the postseason. Um, you could be right. However, I still think to some degree Barnes and Brazier for what they've done this year, which was impressive, especially in October, but they're, you know, going into next year's regular season, they're still going to be relatively unproven. And you still, you know, there's a majority of games, I think, you know, in the regular season at least where, you know, the guy, the pitcher does come in in the ninth inning and, you know, he gets those last three outs and gets the, you know, the save put into the column there in his stat sheet. So I, I think that is important. I think it would behoove the Red Sox. I don't think they should bring Kimbrell back. I'm with you. 18 million a year is crazy money. I think it would behoove them, though, if Dombrowski could find, like, a veteran closer maybe. I'm not saying this guy, but a Koji Uehara type, someone who could, you know, at least if everything went wrong with, with, with Brazier and Barnes, you could kind of just throw this guy in. Maybe you only have to pay him, like, 10 million a year. And he's, you know, he's a veteran guy, knows what he's doing. Uh, not Ryan Madsen, though, not him. Uh, but someone, somebody who, uh, you know, you can just kind of, you know, old reliable who can kind of, you know, maybe stabilize things just in case uh, you need to. Uh, I, I don't think that would be a bad idea. I mean, I think if you, you know, this whole bullpen, if you bring them all back next year without Kimbrell, um, I don't necessarily know if they are better. Kind of depends what roles they have. But kind of on that front, let's talk about uh, probably the two most important guys and the question whether the Red Sox should bring them back. Obviously, Nathan Avaldi and Joe Kelly, two parts of that bullpen. I guess with Avaldi, you could think of him as a starter too. Um, what's your feeling on both those guys? Are they going to be too expensive to uh, retain here? Uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, you you did mention in one of your tweets today the Red Sox are going to be freeing up about forty million dollars in payroll, so some of that money could be allotted to to guys like Avaldi and Kelly. But what do you what do you think the odds are they they bring them back and or could they get them back at an affordable rate? Yeah, so I would if I was the Red Sox, if I was Dombrowski, I would go for Avaldi and I would go for maybe Pierce. Um, I wouldn't go for Kelly just because you know Kelly. <laughs> Yeah, you can talk about how he 
you know, was um, tipping pitches for much of this year, whatever. I, think I, I thought Kimbrell was the one tipping you know, pitches, that goes, though. That gets talked uh-huh. about too much, as, you uh-huh. know, or gets overblown a little bit. Um, Wait a minute, Chris. Wasn't Kimbrell the one that was tipping the pitches? Especially no, no. In the there was reports that both of them were. Oh, okay. All right. I didn't. There was the a Kelly rep- one got downplayed completely. All right. There was a report that from Rob Raffer that Kelly is tipping pitches for most of the season and all of his pitches. And um, well, I guess he wasn't in October. It's, uh, yeah. So I mean, anyway. I guess they they met in September to figure things out. You know, maybe maybe Kelly has turned the corner here. But I've been saying that for a long time now. And, you know, he had an ERA over eight for, you know, three three different months during the 2018 season. And, you know, Kelly is, throughout his, his Red Sox career, he's had, he's, you know, he's had those post, that postseason that he's had, he's had months in the regular season like that. He's had stretches in the regular season like that, three-month stretches where he's dominated. Um so I'm not a huge Kelly guy. I think that in the end, he's Joe Kelly, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and, and he's just kind of an under, I don't know if I should say underachiever or just, you know, he just doesn't, he does you know, hasn't, he can't put it all together for what his talent is and, and you know, his ability. And, um, but I would definitely bring back Valdi. I, I was up on Valdi from the time that they traded for him you know, that they should bring him back as, as uh, you know, even before this postseason run, when they traded for him, I saw about three starts from this, that this guy, they should bring him back. Um, I think he'd definitely be a great fit in the starting rotation, and, you know, he is a potential closer option, too. But I look at the Red Sox bullpen, and I say, there's three guys in the minor leagues that have the ability to, to contribute next year. You know, Durbin Feltman, who was that guy that many people thought would contribute this year that they drafted out of TCU last year in the 2018 draft. Uh, you know, he was a third-rounder as a wipeout slider, upper 90s. He, you know, potential, or they think he's going to be a closer down the line. He could contribute. Travis Lakin's dominated double-A and triple-A this year. He's another bullpen option. Mike Schwarren. Uh, is pitching in the Arizona Fall League right now as a reliever. He started all year for Portland and Pawtucket last year. Um, he, he's doing really good, really good as a reliever right now. Ten, ten strikeouts, one walk. There's people that they have in the organization, and you can always get people at the trade deadline. They didn't do it this year, but they they didn't need to because of all with the starter and the reliever that they needed at the trade deadline. Uh, so I, I look at it as. I would go for Valdi. I might bring back Pierce if there's reasonable money, but I probably wouldn't bring back Kelly. How much do you think it would uh, take to get Evaldi to, to stay here? You know, would it be like three years and like maybe forty to forty-five million, something in that range? Yeah, that that sounds about right. I haven't really looked at the projected numbers that Heyman, different people have for him. But, yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, especially with the postseason that he had. He's coming off a second Tommy John surgery, so you would think that, you know, and and you responded well off of it. You know, so, I mean, you would think that, you know, even though he's past 30, you know, he's healthy because he just had the Tommy John surgery, right? So, you know, I look at it that way instead of looking at it as a health risk that he's had the surgery and he 
pitched well from it immediately in his first year back. So I look at it as, you know, as, as someone that can be healthy and can, you know, that you can sign to a three-year deal and feel comfortable about as a 30-something-year-old pitcher. So I, 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 I would think that that would get it done. I don't see why the Red Sox, um, you know, wouldn't go beyond, um, you know, 215 or what is it, 217 in their payroll this, this coming year, or maybe more. Maybe they'll go beyond the 237 again. Um, you know, I can get in numbers with you, but you know, <laughs> it's I, I don't I I don't think for I'm I'm always been under the pressure for a big market team. It it doesn't kill them. No, no, I and I I think they went over the two thirty seven or came right up against it this year. I'm hearing some rumblings that that number might go to two forty next year before you kind of have to pay the extra uh, luxury taxes. Uh, but yeah, no, the Red Sox should be able to to go up to that number. I mean, they're obviously, you know, uh, looking for potential free agents or at least just being able to maybe bring back an Evaldi or maybe a Pierce or maybe a Joe Kelly. And then you factor in, you know, Betts is going to be going to arbitration. His salary is probably going to double and be close to twenty million and some other arbitration cases too. So you know, the the money that they might be freeing up from uh, guys like Pomerantz and Hanley finally coming off the books. Uh, you know, it's gonna get it's gonna get swallowed up pretty fast. So uh, yeah, they'll uh, it, it's definitely gonna be uh, you know a very interesting offseason. You mentioned Pierce. The only thing I would say with Pierce is he's thirty five. You're already paying six million to Moreland. Uh, I think Pierce was making close to six million this year. I know the Red Sox didn't pay all that when they acquired him from Toronto, but that was his salary. Uh, I think based on a World Series MVP, this is his last chance for him to ever like cash. If there's ever gonna be a big you know, uh, you know, contract out there for him. This would be the time. You know, I think someone might be crazy enough to offer him, like, say, two years at eight million per. And if it gets that high, uh, you know, hey, I loved what he did in the postseason, but I would let him go because you know, if you want to bring up these unknown relievers and the minors that could step in and be part of the 2019 team, I'll give you guys like either you know Sam Travis or maybe even Michael Chavis, someone else who could kind of fill out the right hand platoon at first base uh, with Moreland if you're gonna you know look that way. Yeah, and um, you know. I don't know if this would, you know, Corbis talked about how excited he is to have Jackie Bradley back next year, and you know, but Corbis also not the one making the decisions, and I don't know if this is, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if this is this is just speculation on my part. There's, I have no idea if they're thinking about this. If they would consider this, but that's that's another way to get some salary down. You know, is if they were. To, to slash some salary by trading Jackie Bradley, who's right now is at his, you know, he has good trade value again right now after a strong second half, which he had an OPS over 800 each month, July, August, uh, July, August, and September, and then he had a good postseason with some big hits. And you know, if you wanted to, uh, you know, put uh, Mookie Betts in center or put Benintendi in center, and you know, keep Mookie and keep that's in right field or whatever, and, you know, find that left fielder, uh, maybe Michael Chavis, you know? So, uh, you know, there's there's different things that you can do, and, you know, to I mean, I know that he provides excellent defense, and he's a game-changer defensively, he just won a gold glove, but, you know, is he going to be worth the money that they're going to have to pay him in arbitration, which I think they paid him about 6 point something million this year, 
that's obviously going to go up quite a bit because of the success he had in the second half in the postseason. And so... Yeah, arguably his number might double just as Betts does, or at least come close to it. So, I mean, that's, that's, that is a possibility. Um, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, as I said, that's speculation. But that could be an area where they subtract payroll right there yeah well and you mentioned Chavis I think we're, was I reading in one of your uh, uh, columns uh, that uh, you uh, I guess he's going to be they're going to the Red Sox are going to play him in left field and second base uh, and a couple other positions I mean he came up as a third baseman uh, but they're looking at him to maybe play a little bit of left or second. I mean, is that is yeah? That he played shortstop in high school, and then he um, played some shortstop in the um, lower levels of the minors. Um, and then they moved him to third base, and they've had him play some first base. But yeah, he'll he'll play some second base potentially. He's already taken some ground balls there, and they're also considering him in left field too. And that's insurance in case you know a second base insurance in case Pedroia can come back, and that's you, a possibility. You, I mean, we really don't have any idea. I was just, I was just going to ask you, do you think, I mean, I don't know. I'm not very hopeful on Pedroia, which uh, does kind of create probably both a short and long-term problem because I don't think Brock Holt and Eduardo Nunez are going to continue to keep platooning at second base because uh, certainly Kinsler's going to gonna hit free agency, and they're not, like you said, they're not going to bring him back and uh, – I, I just can't see them continuing to rotate guys around at second, but I think they may not have a choice if Pedroia can't answer the bell, and I just think he's had too many surgeries and at his advanced age. I mean, I just don't know what they can expect from him. Yeah, so that, that's why I I was interested in going to the press conference on Thursday with a question about Chavis potentially playing second base, and... Dombrowski, before I was able to ask it, Dombrowski brought it up on his own that he was uh, he was second base depth. Uh, and then I expanded on it. I asked him if they had really talked about that and stuff like that, and they had. They hadn't taken ground balls. So, yeah, he's a potential, uh, he's a potential second base. And, um, you, know, the re- you know, I mean, I don't know how well he'll play it, and so that, I mean, he might not be able to play well enough. <laughs> and that that experience, that experiment might go down the tubes. But we'll see. I mean, if he can play it and, you know, he's got power. He's showing he's got power and that he can hit. And um, we'll see going forward with him. Yeah, well, uh, didn't kind of mean to end on a, on a downer note. They're talking about Pedroia's future with the Red Sox. Certainly there was a lot of good things from 2018 and 2019 will uh, certainly prove uh, to be interesting. But uh, I, I think at this point, uh, Chris, I, I feel it's it's only fair to let you go. You, you've uh, bit, you stayed on the Toddcast more than I can expect of you, and I do appreciate the time you, you've taken to join us uh, here to kind of recap uh, the 2018 season. So, uh, again, uh, thanks a lot for, uh, for being part of the Toddcast. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Anytime. Well, all right, again, you can follow uh, Christopher Smith, the Red Sox beat writer for MassLive.com. He is on Twitter, at Smitty on MLB. And don't forget to follow us on social media by searching Time Out for Sports Talk on Facebook and on Twitter, at TOSTBMC is our handle. You can get links to the latest TOST podcasts as soon as they're available, including this one. Check out previous uh, Time Out for Sports Talk TV shows on demand at BelmontMedia.org. And our next live show, just so you know, is coming up on Wednesday, November 14th. 
Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or both to get the latest updates. Once again, thanks to Christopher Smith from MassLive.com, Red Sox Beat Rider. And until next time, for Chris Smith, this is Todd Bologniars. Thank you for checking out the TOST Toddcast right here on the Belmont Media Podcast Network. <laughs>